1: Peace out, A-Town.
0: Hey, what's up? Wait. Persis,
1: come on. What? You got it. What's love? No, purses. I, I can hear everyone listening, like, screaming at you right now. Peace out, A-Town. And then the beat comes in.
0: Oh, boom, 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 boom. Uh-huh. See, okay, I wasn't like totally off. What's that got to That's do? That's a different song. So yes, you were uh, totally off. But it's like the same genre.
1: No, different, different in every way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah was a song down. of a generation. You know what I always think of when I think of Yeah by Usher? Me? <laughs> <laughs> no, you wish. What
1: do you think of?
0: Okay, remember the movie Hitch? Of course. <laughs> I think of um, Albert Brenneman when um, Will Smith is trying to teach him how to be cool. And yep. he tries to teach him how to dance and they play Yeah. <laughs> I don't
1: know why. <laughs> so cute. Yeah, the movie's really cute. Um, how much do you crush on... Uh... Oh, who's the lead actress in that?
0: Eva Mendez.
1: Thank you. I really wanted to say Eva Longoria. <laughs> I knew that wasn't right. How much do you crush on her? She's so beautiful.
0: Oh, she's my everything.
1: Um, I definitely crush on Will Smith though. Guys, if you haven't watched King Richard yet, you gotta watch it. It's so good. And he's nominated for an Oscar. I'm just going to fact check this really quick here. I mean, knowing you purse, you're not gonna cut this out because you want me to you want me to embarrass myself. I always wanna embarrass you. Hey, I was right. He is nominated for Actor in a Leading Role for this movie, and it's so cute, so cute. So you guys should all watch it if you haven't watched it yet. It's a great story. And it's not even really about him. It's about the Williams sisters, so God bless.
0: Yeah, I actually, on my way to Van to come and see my baby, I... Me. Yes. I was going to watch King Richard on the plane, but then I I didn't watch any movie when I was going down.
1: When you were going down? (laughs) What do you mean? Like in the plane? Was the plane going down? <laughs> Purse, you got to choose your language real carefully when you're talking about a plane ride
0: like that. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean that. I Guys, I'm really tired. I didn't choose a movie when I was flying to to Vancouver. <laughs> Not going down. Oh my God. Oh my God. But I got to tell the people what oh. I do every time. Oh, yes. I take All the off people. and I'm landing.
1: It's actually kind of genius. But didn't, was it your idea or are we giving the credit to someone else?
0: No. I can't remember. <laughs> I got to give the credit to Megan Fox. Okay.
1: Okay. Tell us what you
0: do. It's not my original idea. But what Megan Fox says, and I took this from her, is that she gets a bit of plane anxiety. So anytime she's taking off and every time she's landing. And honestly, I get that anxiety too. Sometimes I get really nervous. But she says what she'll do is she'll listen to, like, a really cheesy, mainly, like, 90s pop star or boy band song because she's, like, I know it's not in my destiny to die to, like, bye-bye-bye by NSYNC. (laughs) Whereas if if you're listening to, like, a really heartfelt, like, beautiful track, like, maybe you could die. But anyway. Okay. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it's more likely, like... Yeah.
1: Listen, I think it's... I actually think it's great. And I agree that it's not my destiny to die to bye-bye-bye. But then on the other hand, I think, like, but what if it is? I would almost kind of love it if at my funeral, y'all were like, listen, she died doing what she loved, listening to Yeah by Usher featuring Lil Jon. So I, I bounce back and forth between, like, is it my destiny? It might actually, I don't think it's Megan Fox's destiny because she's Megan Fox, but it could be mine.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, I think my destiny might be Mm -hmm. to die to a Britney Spears song because that's exactly what I do, but I don't just pick any Britney song. I pick a song deep cut, only like the real fans will really know this song, but it's Dear Diary. It was on her Oops, I Did It Again album and listen- I literally kid you not, I listen to it every time before I take off. And if I'm not like asleep, if I'm like land about to land, I'll be like, Dear Diary. Can you sub in right
1: here a little clip of the song? Just so people can okay, guys, when you hear this clip, just imagine Persis like taking off in a plane. Dear Diary. Today I saw one. Wonder... Me. Took my breath away. Dear
0: diary. I feel like it's a good takeoff landing song. Literally, I'm knocking on wood right now. Yeah, if that ever happens to me, you'll just have to say, like, yeah, she died doing what she loved.
1: God forbid, knocking on all the wood in the whole world. We would know that you were listening to Dear Diary. You'll know. And we would tell Brittany, and Brittany would post- Posthumously, I can never say that word. Posthumously, you, you guys know what I'm trying to say? After death. Brittany would like give you like an award or something. posthumously. How do you say that word? Someone tell us. Someone tell us. Someone Send tell us, us a voice us. note in the DMs um, how to pronounce that word.
0: Oh, uh, she give me an award for um, listening to her song before death.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, she'll post a picture of you and be like, Persis was my fan. And then you'll be in heaven looking down, being like, getting that clout <laughs>
0: that clouded,
1: yep, yeah, there we go,
0: oh man, this conversation's scaring me.
1: Let's shift gears and talk about our guest because it's also scaring me a little bit too. and we I just have to want- say our
0: guest would love our intro though I think oh, this is, yeah. this is a our guest's wheelhouse,
1: yes, absolutely, and our guest is a friend of ours, um which is why she would love the intro just because she knows how ridiculous we are. And also our guest loves Brittany.
0: Our guest is Kayla Meredith, the founder of the Move to Heal project and who Sarah and I both used to work with. She was our manager and since then has just become one of our dear, dear friends. I don't know. I love her with my whole heart. Like when I think of Kayla, she just gives me the warm and fuzzies.
2: Yes,
1: me too. And I felt that way back in the day when she was our manager at the restaurant that we worked at. Um, And I still feel that way today. Kayla worked in the hospitality industry for a long time, but now her main focus is helping support trauma survivors because Kayla is a trauma survivor herself and has basically her entire life has been a journey of realizing the trauma, dealing with the trauma. Kayla is trauma-informed and trained and there are a whole bunch of ways that she teaches trauma survivors how to essentially like move through their trauma both physically and mentally. So the Move to Heal project is all about how movement can help us heal um, from trauma and it's a process but she is just like this ray of sunshine and She's still, she's still going through it. Like, you know, it's the healing journey that never ends, but she just brings like so much positivity and light into like every interaction she has and everything she does.
0: What I loved about this conversation too, and you guys will, we'll get into this obviously once you dive in, but we really talk about trauma and sexuality and how those two are actually can be linked and how maybe sexual trauma that you may have faced as a kid could actually maybe affect your sexuality um, throughout the years. And you know what? I used to be someone who was so like, no, 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 that, that doesn't make sense. Like, But as we talked to Kayla and kind of discovered a little bit more, I just think things aren't so black and white. And I tend to discover that the more we have these conversations with people on our podcast. So we're excited for you guys to listen to that and maybe um, open your minds up to it as well.
1: We at Girl on Girl do believe that your sexual orientation is not a choice. It's something you're born with. Yeah. We do believe that. Um and and throughout this conversation, this conversation doesn't change that. Like that's still Kayla's truth and we we go into it with her. Um like she was born she was born a certain way and that has seeped into who she is as a sexual person as well. But at the same time, it was really interesting learning how events in your life can impact like not just your sexual orientation, but also your sexuality as a whole, like who you are as a sexual person, as a sexual human, um, especially if the trauma you experienced um, in your life was sexual trauma. So guys, if it wasn't clear, this conversation goes very deep and trigger warnings for sexual trauma, anxiety, depression, abuse, rape, um, it, it's This is a really important conversation, but make sure you're in the right headspace for it. I feel like I just said this on a recent episode, but if you're not in the right headspace, it's all good. Come back to this when you're ready. But Kayla has so much healing information to share for anyone who needs it. And this might help you understand your own sexuality better related to what you've
0: experienced in your life. Guys, let us know what you think about this episode. Give us some feedback. Give Kayla some love. You can follow her at kayla
1: meredith which is c-a-y-l-a-m-e-r-e-d-i-t-h she has all sorts of programs that you can work with her through she has a podcast she has amazing book recos um and she would love to hear from you so reach out to her anytime and we really hope you guys enjoy this conversation with our good friend kayla meredith I'm really fascinated by this topic. Like, I have so many questions.
2: Plot twist: I click the button, leave meeting.
0: Right? Imagine that was that was the whole episode. That was it. Um, and everyone, that was Kayla. That was Kayla Meredith. Thank you so much for being on this episode. She's a double Gemini, Sun and Rising, Sun and Rising, What's... and her Moon is in Virgo.
2: Her Moon is in Virgo. That's right. And that's all you need to know. About. My my Venus is also in Gemini.
1: You have a lot of Gemini in wow, your okay, That's a lot.
2: I'm all air is what I have. It's it's a lot.
0: Perse, what's your moon? My moon is Scorpio. Oh, right. Right. It right. makes a lot of sense.
2: So oh much sense. God. It makes that so works. much sense. Sometimes I feel like a floating balloon where I'm like and when I'm stressed as well, I present as both of you probably remember from working with me at The Craft, I present so flaky. I could just be so like, which is not, it's just chaotic air, you know? So I... I...
1: No, let me just interrupt here for a sec because, okay, just to give... So guys, our guest today is Kayla Meredith, and she's amazing. And we're going to learn all about her. But first off, we know her because... She was actually our manager at a restaurant, that person I both worked at, in Liberty Village in Toronto. I only worked there for a month. Persis worked there for like years or something, right? <laughs> I worked years. there for two years. Yeah. Two years. You you loved it there. I I liked it there too, but I I forget what happened. Anyway, whatever. The point is, you were our manager and Flaky is not even close to how I would describe how I remembered you. I thought you were. In control, I thought you were so, so easy to be around, approachable and friendly that you could come to you with a problem. You'd fix it and it would be easy peasy. There wouldn't be any like toxic, you know how sometimes manager at restaurant uh, energy can be quite toxic and kind of scary. Like you're scared to come to them with an issue, mm-hmm. but you never seemed flaky or at, or out of touch or confused or like chaotic. It was always... Persis, like, can you back me up on this?
0: Of course, yeah. No, you were like a friend, always. I have, like, very, very comforting energy to you. And I loved when you were on the floor, like, managing. I loved when, like, it would be us working together or we were closing together. I was like, God bless me. Thank God it's Kayla. Ah, it was the best. <laughs> thank God. Know, you were the best manager.
2: No I thank you also for just, like, gassing my tires on that because I recently ran into... I can't remember who it was, but someone that that was a server there. And we're acquaintances now. And but she was like, or we're friends now, but she was like, You were mean. And this was pre my soul cycle era when I joined that community in Toronto, like loving, accepting, kind humans. Like I was still trying to work out my shit. Can I swear on here? Of yes. course you can.
1: More I was than still trying them. to like
2: work out my inner demons. And like I was nearing the end of my time in restaurants. So there she, I think she said that I made her cry or something. No way. Yeah, and I was what? like, "Wait, I'm so sorry. That's not who I am anymore." And she was like, "Sure, sure." You know, and I I definitely reflect back on a few moments where I was like, "Yeah, I don't know if I was in a good headspace." So, happy but that you
1: That's have fascinating. Those I,
2: thoughts. I wouldn't in but a million
1: there- years have guessed that. You made someone cry?
2: Yeah, like, brings out weird sides of people, I think, with the stress.
1: It really does. The restaurant industry is, like, so great and also so toxic <laughs> at the same time.
0: It's very, like, tense energy. So I actually find that there are sides to people that you see in the restaurant, and then after, they're like, I am so sorry.
2: I developed such a thick skin
0: uh, yeah.
2: working in restaurants, and I got really scrappy at one point, and, like, there's... I could fill a book with the stories I have about confrontations, what I've seen behind the scenes, uh, what like chefs have said and like fits of rage, (laughs) like what's happened like mid-service if we're short staffed and like how the staff responds and how you respond to them. And like, so many stories also involving me, like losing my shit a little that I'm not proud of, but, um,
1: Yeah, but the industry does it to you.
2: It, it just, it's like being in a pot of boiling water all the time. Like it's just so stressful. And I think I have so much respect for anyone that's still in the industry. Like it takes a lot. Uh, It's a very challenging job, you know, especially management, anything back of house. Like,
1: Well, I mean, there is no one scarier in a restaurant than a chef or a cook. I have totally. so many
2: stories honestly.
1: I mean, I actually would love if you wrote a book about that. I would read every page.
2: Okay, I think I might weave some of my time from the restaurant industry into the book. I yeah. can't not
0: because yeah, it's a there's of your it's, life.
2: it's a good read too. Like there's good juicy stuff I could pull. Oh yeah, baby, we love the juice. Stay tuned. <laughs>
0: yes, please. <laughs>
2: Maybe hopefully 2023 it will be done seriously, but it's not about restaurants. It's about trauma and not, not a memoir, you know, so plugging that for whatever it's released.
0: We met you through the restaurant industry, but then getting into trauma, just wanted to know like how, what led you into creating the Move to Heal project?
2: Yes, I should, I should expand on who I am.
0: Yeah. Give yourself a little intro. Tell our listeners
1: about you.
2: I like long walks on the beach. I'm a Gemini, Gemini rising. That's that's all you need to know. Um, Yeah.
1: (laughs) Who's interested?
2: The Move to Heal project. Okay, where where should I start with this? With why I created the Move to Heal project? Or what is Mm -hmm. it? Or all of it? All of it. Okay, so the backstory is the Move to Heal project started off as a blog. And it has roots in me hitting my rock bottom in 2013. So before I met the two of you. But... I've nav- I had navigated at that point through anxiety, depression, uh bouts of panic. Came across uh, there was a last straw event that really pushed me to my breaking point essentially and then I was loosely diagnosed with complex PTSD. And I say loosely because the medical system like the way it's structured, they don't recognize complex trauma in the DSM, which is like a whole other podcast together, but Um, I was loosely diagnosed with complex PTSD in 2013 and could not really receive help from the medical system. And I was a trained yoga teacher at that time, fell through the cracks of the medical system and then was like, I got to figure out some way that I can help myself as I'm waiting for further assistance from, I think I was on a wait list for trauma therapy. My doctor, Mm. who I'm absolutely obsessed with um, had referred me to some programs that I wasn't able to get into. Oh, wow. Um, and so reflecting back on my life at that point, I was like, have I ever felt happy at all? Like, mm-hmm. and if so, when, because that she was having me fill out these surveys weekly, um, circling one to five, like, do you find joy in anything? Do you... Have suicidal tendencies, and I was just like answering on the low end for all of them, like just really not feeling anything, really feeling really numb in reflecting back, I realized that the moments where I did feel joy was one of two instances, and one was when I was in community with safe people, and the other one was when I see to move my own body, so like my yoga training or running mm-hmm. and. I leaned into those things as I started healing. It's like, where's safe community? How can I foster safe connection? Because we'll chat about later. I didn't have any of that within my family, so that that was like the foundation became the foundation of my healing. Um, and then what later, I guess, eight years or seven years later, led me to start move to heal. I essentially created it as a way of being like this is everything that i needed when i was at my lowest point let's mm-hmm. create this space online that looks at at how might we move our body in a way that re-emphasizes choice and how might we continue to foster safe connection um and a big part of it as well was how can we speak candidly about things that no one is talking about right now because at oh, that nice. time mental mental health wasn't really fully discussed. This is I just made this answer way longer than it needed to be, but basically it started as a blog in 2013 and then I launched it as a business literally a week before covid hit. <laughs>
1: I did not know that.
2: I created programs for anxiety, depression and trauma one on one and then covid hit. In covid it's become this space that's like specifically trauma focused. So I work with trauma survivors one-on-one, but we do look at things like how might trauma result in anxiety or how might trauma might, how might trauma result in depression, Mm. like how depression and anxiety might have roots in trauma. Yeah. That's my very long winded answer of how how I started the Mootskill project.
1: Well, something like this doesn't just like, it's not, you know, there's no elevator pitch, like a lot of many, many years of, trauma, and healing go into something like this. So it takes a bit of a longer explanation to get there.
2: Of course. Uh, You two are so encouraging.
0: Yeah. I love it so much. (laughs) That's why we're here.
2: Like, two, like, I just love it.
0: And I also love how you took something that you knew you needed and, like, created it for other people as well to, like, offer those services to others.
2: I really feel like it's my life's purpose to do this work. I just feel like it's why yeah. I'm here. Um, and I think for me personally, when in doing this work, I'm able to, um, I want to word this carefully, but like, I've been able to j- derive. it's called, I think it's called, the proper term for it is called post-traumatic growth. But okay. attaching meaning in like helping others work through things that are super scary and horrific like it it helps me it helps me I guess of
0: course to just yeah
2: to be like okay I experienced I experienced so many terrible things but like now I can help people and and that that like buoys me and keeps me moving forward yeah mm-hmm. does that make sense it does so you hit a breaking
1: point And that's when you discovered, when you had to ask yourself, like, okay, where do I feel joy? And you figured that out. And then you started your healing journey. How long, like like you started Move to Heal in, uh, or launched it as a business in 2020. So we know that would have been like seven years later. But how long do you think it took you to not heal, because we're always healing, but to take what you were learning in your healing journey and think like, oh, I could maybe turn this into something bigger, a la the move to heal project. Like how many years of healing before you were like, oh, I think I kind of want to like turn this into something. I
2: think, I mean, to the point or I, words are hard. It's important to <laughs> yeah, emphasize that when I was in my doctor's office, filling out these weekly forms, like I was so low I did not feel anything. I did not feel, I didn't even understand how people felt joy. I don't think I'd ever possibly felt true joy in my entire life. Like no Mm. happiness, no joy, just overwhelming, like despair is a really good word. And I stayed in that place for a long time, Uh, a year, two, three. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's complex. Yeah. But of course, there were moments where I was like, feeling something in the moment, like something mm-hmm. that wasn't despair, like it, it moved the needle a bit if I went on a run, or did yoga. And that's where I was like, okay, this is where the resonance is like, let's expand on this. Mm. But it was a lot of years of work in regards to that. And then also seeking support in trauma therapy. So I worked with my trauma therapist on and off for... I think four years, so I want to say two thousand and thirteen actually know what happened. I think it was when I started working at full cycle in two thousand and seventeen or I closed one door to the restaurant industry because i I really felt like I couldn't heal there mm-hmm. i I love my time in restaurants and I loved. Everyone I worked with in restaurants, most people I worked with in restaurants, and it, well, <laughs> hashtag never forget.
1: Hashtag <laughs> never like, forget.
2: They became like family to me, but it, it like did not encourage a healthy lifestyle. And I was like, I just can't heal, heal there. And when I closed the door to that, which was one of the most challenging things I've ever done, it I opened this new door to a different community that was safer, And I think that's where the seeds were planted for me to be like, okay. Right. Feeling good, feeling supported, feeling like I'm with my people. Yeah. And that's when I started like really digging into the work. And then that's when I was like, I think I'm ready to launch something. And as as I said before, it started off as a blog. So it was really just like creating space to have candid conversation. It wasn't directly like let's help people right away it was more so how can we get how can we keep the conversation moving yeah like shine light on things that need to be talked about
1: totally I have a lot of questions about trauma and obviously that's what we're talking about that's the that's what we're talking about today with you and that's your specialty but how like were you aware before you started your healing journey okay you're shaking your head you weren't aware that like trauma was even a part of what was happening. How did you figure that out? Was it, like, how did you even know to contact a trauma therapist?
2: It's so, this is so interesting because, and I'll speak through the lens of my own experience, but Mm -hmm. as a child, like, I literally grew up in trauma. Like, I always tell people I was born afraid. That is a true statement for me. I was afraid my whole childhood. I just thought that that's what was normal. Like I thought the way I interacted with my parents was normal. I thought the way they treated me was normal. I thought everyone else had families like mine. Um, And if you're in the midst of like such deep trauma, you're just in survival mode. It's not like you can't, have these moments of clarity, because it would actually be harmful. So like your body does everything it can to protect itself. And for me, it was just like complete dissociation. And I was in that I was that way until I was 29. Oh, wow. So when I met my now ex in trying to think back to a timeline, but 2011. I knew that there was something that needed to be addressed, but I didn't have the verbiage for it. And it's so interesting because if you look at brain scans of humans that have experienced complex trauma, it actually trauma, complex trauma actually affects Broca's area of the brain, which is the part of the brain responsible for speech. So a lot of people are like, when they say like, I can't talk about it, it's because they actually can't talk about it.
0: Like literally
2: trigger warning, just saying it here verbally in case, but that yeah. I, obviously I was like, yeah, I was sexually abused. This is something that I didn't even know I was sexually abused until I was 25, which wow. is like just a testament to the defenses yeah. the body has in like protecting you. Yeah. But so entering into that relationship, I was like, like I know that I experienced sexual abuse, but really couldn't connect dots on it. I just knew that it happened. Yeah. So it wasn't until after I lost, till after I broke up with that partner who was a very safe and loving person, like losing him from my life was a last straw trauma for me is what it's called. So the last straw trauma after that event, you don't just, if you've been numbing, you don't just feel the impact from that event. You feel the impact of all the events that are unprocessed at the same time. So wow. it's like I went from not feeling anything to literally just feeling like I was under a mountain of like I literally wanted to implode like I was like oh my god it was so, so excruciatingly painful and then in that moment it was like despair suicidal ideation like can't get out of bed like so like what's the point in living like it was like everything all at once yeah. still no verbiage for it so it wasn't until 2013, I got hired at this property, which is so out of my comfort zone. Like I'm very right brained and I like accounts receivable is all math yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, numbers. And I could barely concentrate. I like someone coming to me and it would be gone. Like I could not hold anything in my brain. I was having panic attacks like two to three times a day. Um, a so day? In that, yeah, and then, <sighs> so then I was like, okay, obviously something's wrong. And I went to my boss who then went to HR and they referred me to a sexual assault center in Bracebridge, Skoka. I went there for group therapy and then was like, okay, there's a lot more trauma here than, I, than we had planned.
1: Didn't plan for this one.
2: <laughs> I was like, yeah, I have sexual trauma. And then I was like, tip of the iceberg, there's all this underneath. And then that's right. kind of what happened. Wow.
1: It is kind of um, lovely that you felt safe enough to go to your boss and your boss knew like what to do and was like there to help you and support you and at least direct you to HR who could at least direct you somewhere. Like that's actually a pretty huge moment in your story. And it's kind of crazy that it was like your employer who, who was like, don't worry, here we go, we got this.
2: She, we had known each other previously, um, through the church, but not very well, um, and she reached out to me because she wanted me for this position, but I honestly, I'm not in contact with her anymore, but I don't know that I would be the person that I am truly without her guidance and support that summer. She held space for me in a way that no one had ever held space for me before she showed me compassion and like care when I needed it the most Mm -hmm. like she was just a fierce space holder is how I would like describe her it makes it like makes me emotional thinking about it like she I didn't have a car she drove me to therapy in Muskoka once a week would meet me before and after we debrief like it was the hardest summer of my life, but it definitely did like like lots of directions were changed that summer for sure.
1: The brain fascinates me so much and I know so little about it. And so much of this is like neuroscience. And I guess before we like dive deeper into trauma, can you just maybe explain and like a high level kind of way, like what exactly is trauma like how would you describe it and how does it work? I know that's kind of a loaded question
2: it is and there there's different ways to answer that question, I think, and it's so funny because I googled trauma definition yeah yeah <laughs> I was thinking about how to answer this which Often, when I'm chatting with humans on podcasts or like on lives and stuff like that, they're like, "So what is trauma?" And just to be clear on my scope, so I'm a trauma survivor, and um, after I mean, I'm a trauma survivor that's worked to complete several different certifications pertaining to trauma. So I'm not a clinician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Yeah, I am educated and certified in trauma work. It's just different than being a psychiatrist or like a, totally. an MD, yeah. but how I often describe it is there's a few different ways that I can describe it. So the first way could be trauma is anything that completely overwhelms your ability to cope. Um, and then the way Gabor Mate describes it really resonates with me. So he talks about how complex is not about the hurt it is about being alone with your hurt in the absence of an empathetic witness, which when I heard that, I was like, oh, (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. so painful because it points to how important secure attachment is when when navigating really, really big events. And I always think about the, this is a slight rabbit trail, but could be important. I always think about the Elizabeth Smart case where she was kidnapped from her room at 14 years old and then held captive. Like she was eventually rescued and now she works like helping other, helping to find other people that have been missing or kidnapped or taken. And the press at the time, I think kept following up with her and they're like, how is she so, you know, like seemingly doing so well? But I think a large, and obviously this is not to demean or diminish what she's gone through. Like obviously her story is, there's so many wild aspects to it. But I think she explains um, what her life was like before she got kidnapped and the secure attachment she had with her family and how she wrote in her journal that the captors couldn't read French. So she would write, and they were like, This is who you are. They were brainwashing her, and she kept writing in French I am Elizabeth Smart. My, these are my parents. This is my family. This is my home. Now, what would have happened possibly if she had been kidnapped and she didn't have secure attachments? Right. She didn't right. have a, uh, that stability in her family, probably would be a very different result. So, in right. sharing that, I think it points to what Gabor Mate says on it's like, there's this hurt or this pain or this catastrophic event and then there's people that are alone with it in the aftermath or during it there's no empathetic witness to hold space so those are personally two definitions that i typically reach for yeah um along with i mean we could read the literally the definition that pulled up online was trauma a distressing event <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's <great>. that's it <laughs> listen Google did not put as much effort into the definition as you did. Clearly. Step it up, Google. Even... Step it up, Googs. Come on.
0: I didn't even think about, like, the attachments, like, prior to experiencing, like, a trauma. I, I never would have thought that, to be honest. Like, that Elizabeth Smart case is, was a really good way to kind of describe that.
2: Can I um, expand on that, actually, yes. briefly? Yes. Is yeah, that okay? of course. But I think it's so, it's honestly so important to create space to talk about this because, like, I'm so passionate about trauma education because people don't know and a lot of people don't understand. And then that's where the, the ignorance can stem from. So I just think it's important to keep creating space to talk about this. And from, like, just speaking to the attachment standpoint. So, as an example, just say you have a child where one parent has left the household so the child is being raised by their mom and the mom is abusive from a young age just like physically verbally so there's some sort of abuse happening so the child is experiencing neglect from one or abandonment from one parent which neglect on brain scans shows up in the same area of the brain as physical abuse wow there's neglected abandonment from one parent and then the other parent that's active is abusive. So this is already problematic. Why? Mm -hmm. Because parents are there to model regulation and they're there to model like (laughs) safe, secure attachment. So an example could be if this baby is crying and crying and crying and the parent for whatever reason, maybe due to their own uh, trauma, doesn't have the capacity to soothe that baby, the baby then is left with this overwhelm, all these big feelings for starters. And then the other belief that becomes imprinted on them is I cry and I cry and I cry and no one comes. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what I do, which later can translate to learned helplessness or a lack of a sense of agency. So, meaning, it doesn't matter what I do or like I can't impact an outcome, which can like look so many different ways into adulthood. So just from that like early childhood, like fragmentation and attachment, so Mm. many things are happening. And the last most profound one is, or I mean like they're they're all impactful, but the last one that got me, what I learned about it was because the brain is still developing, as a child you cannot we pedestal our parents right so as a kid you can't be like this is not about me
1: totally you're you're
2: believing you're like this is my fault i'm bad and like and that becomes a part of how you view your that's how you view yourself so it's like trauma is so layered it's like it impacts how we interact with ourselves how we view ourselves, how we view other people. We come to learn if it is like childhood trauma is very tricky to treat because the er earlier it happens, the greater the levels of dissociation. Mm. But it essentially, it impacts everything. It's like you come to learn the world is not safe. No one is safe because there's literally been no one there to show you what safety is. Right. And plot twist that person that I was talking about in the example, like that's me. That was my experience. Like that's what happened to me.
0: Yeah. Okay. Right. So, like
2: everything that I'm sharing is like, that's very real. It's like mm-hmm. all of those yeah. things I've, I've felt and dealt with. Um, but that's like a glimpse into the layering effect of trauma, never mind like its impact on the nervous system as well, which is like a whole separate thing.
1: No, that's a really helpful explanation, honestly. Like, I think you're right. A lot of people don't understand what trauma is, and I'm one of those people. I have often thought, and I started therapy last year for the first time, and I have often thought, like, have I experienced trauma that I've suppressed? How would I even know? What, it, what even is it? What would it feel like? What would it sound like and look like? And I have no idea because no one's ever it, – it, it, you're right, it isn't something that's talked about. It's kind of hush-hushed even today, I think, in like a world where we talk about everything, air quotes.
2: I'm laughing because I was like, that definitely was her question on the sheet about suppression, where you're like, can you suppress suppress trauma? Oh,
1: yeah. (laughs) So I I told Kayla I wanted to ask her if you can suppress trauma. And that's because I'm wondering, have I suppressed trauma? I've been wondering that for a while. I don't don't know why.
2: Mm, I think too, though, what I just, described as well was so comp okay so what I'm more trained in is complex trauma which is repeated trauma over an extended period of time within the realm of close relationships okay like so childhood trauma presumably it's happening over time because it's with your parents or caregiver right yeah now it's probably going to look a little bit different with like a singular traumatic event
0: got it right Right. So
2: like the impact of complex trauma, a little more intricate than something like one traumatic event, because mm-hmm. from the scope of what I know, one traumatic event could play out differently depending on if you have secure attachments or safety or
0: interesting, like
2: it could play out differently. And Gabra Mate talks a lot about this. I'm a of his work, especially in the book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Um, where he basically just like meets and interviews a ton of humans in Vancouver's East End that are uh, mm-hmm. navigating through addiction, and you learn their life story. And anyways, it very just, cool. I don't know about suppression. I think suppression in regards to trauma. You know, I'm not. I don't want to. I want to stray away from pathologizing, but I think the body's going to work to protect itself, however it can. So. And trauma is also stored differently in memory. Could something be forgotten about or repressed? Absolutely. Right. Like when people say right. they black
0: out a lot of, um, like if they've gone through a trauma, sometimes they really do black it out in a way. They'll be like, I don't remember.
2: Yes. And, and um, I mean, through the lens of my own experience, I have no solid memories before the age of 13.
1: Wow. I, I have no wow. idea.
2: Like by I remember chatting, chatting about my brother with this, my twin brother. And I was like, Hey, do you remember anything from when we were kids? Cause I was doing a meditation and the person was like, reflect back to when you were six. And I was like, who's remembering anything before 13. And then that was another moment for me where I was like, Oh fuck.
1: And that's a great point too. We, there are so many things that we think are normal growing up because it's, our world is so small and we wouldn't know unless we talked to someone about something like you wouldn't have known that it wasn't normal to have no memories before the age of 13, unless you mentioned it. Like we can go years and years and years, just believing these things because we've never said them out loud.
2: And that's why I'm such a big advocate for therapy because in maybe to answer your question about suppression, I really believe that when once we create safety it's like maybe if you're holding on to something um maybe you're holding on to it because it's not safe for you to release it yet so oftentimes people will say oh, yeah. oh I started going to therapy I feel worse and that that could possibly be because you're finally in a safe space and now things are coming up because it's safe for them to so I think you know, if you're working to create safety in your life and continuing to do that, I just feel like healing is uncovering, like you're always uncovering Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. So you might in a few years come across something that you're like, oh my gosh, like now now it's safe for me to address this, or now this is, I'm noticing this come, come up for me.
1: That's a beautiful way to look at it.
2: The hypothesis, I, I don't
1: know. I mean, how can we ever really know? I mean, obviously there's neuroscience behind all of this, but it's a nice idea, right? To think like, if something needs to be like uncovered for me, it will be uncovered at the time it's supposed to, you know? Like that's a nice idea to feel almost like I don't have to worry. Like kind of like I'm out of control. I have no control here. You know what I mean? <laughs> like... Things are going to come up as they come up.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a testament to the power of of safe of creating safety, learning how to create safety in our own lives, and also a testament right. to the power of human connection as well. Yeah. Like Ju- Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery, always talks about how we never heal in isolation, even though that is the tendency with trauma. We always heal in connection with others. Mm-hmm. So I think about that a lot where I'm like, who am I going to meet in my life that's going to like create a different element of safety for me or like teach me something new and like how might they contribute to my healing journey? Totally. I'm like just t- tying into your comments around that. We
0: need people to like stick together <laughs> as cheesy as that sounds, but yeah.
2: That's true. And
1: I think when you're healing from stuff, it's very easy to go inward because you're like, I don't want to bother anyone else with this. I don't want to talk about this. And because the part of your brain used for talking is literally being impacted. That's wild.
2: I even think as well, like, and not to just like keep referencing books, but I'm such a big fan of any book on trauma. And yes. Bessel van der Kolk talks about this a lot in the body keeps the score where this, there's a commonality with a lot of humans that have experienced complex trauma. Like I read this and felt so seen, but He said there's this tendency to completely isolate, and then also this deep longing for for touch. It's you're carrying both feelings in the body at the same time, and like this is exactly my experience, especially pertaining to to sexuality. But when I started working with other people that had experienced complex trauma, all of them described this, where they're like, I don't want anyone to touch me, and I want like touch and love so bad. And of course we would feel this way because of our early childhood experiences with parenting. Like we come to learn that it's not like we can't trust like even something like like, as simple as touch. It's like, are you going to hurt me? I'm not sure. I'll just shut, I'll just shut off from it.
1: Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I think a lot of people too, like don't want to believe that they, that their childhoods had anything to do with, who they are today um, whether they believe they experienced trauma or not whether they did or not but I've learned through therapy that your childhood always impacts you no matter who you are your childhood has impacted like who you are, how you act, what you're scared of, what your flaws are what
0: your what your strengths are and that's why you always have to go back to it truly like I had a therapy session today and we kept going back to okay, I need to go like when, when you were six and seven years old, like we're not talking about you as a teenager, like let's talk about you as a child. And we uncover how- quite a bit through it, it's insane. Things I would have never thought about. Same,
1: it's so wild. And then like you, so you've already spoke a little bit about the trauma that you experienced as a kid. Is there anything else? Cause we want to talk to you a little bit about trauma and sexuality and how the two things might exist in the same world. Is there anything else that you would feel comfortable sharing about your experience with trauma as in your childhood?
2: Yeah, I think it's important before we dive into sexuality to paint a picture of what yeah. my experience was. So for sure. I, I have a twin brother. Thank God, honestly, for my twin brother. I would not be, like, sane without, without him. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's, like, a bonding that happens when you experience something traumatic. Together, of course, but shout out to Deb if you're listening. Yes. <laughs> love you. I love you. <laughs> he's like, oh God. <laughs> I don't think he's
1: listening. It's fine.
2: <laughs> but just to paint a, a picture, also, when I was like previously writing this out, I was like, oh wow, oh, this feels like a lot now that I've, because I don't know that I've ever shared the entire picture like anywhere in a podcast but mm-hmm. so um my dad left when we were born he was an alcoholic we saw him like very intermittently but there was definitely like full on abandonment like happening there my mom and i want to say this delicately there was like definitely physical abuse happening emotional abuse a lot of emotional abuse periods of neglect but i want to say that like I, I very much love my mom, but I'm also, I also still to this day, like grapple with the feeling of like, this is what happened and holding my love for my mom at the same time, because Mm -hmm. the reality is that trauma is passed through generations. Like my mom has her own trauma. The reason why I'm pausing to say this is because I work with so many people that are like, am I normal? You know, like, I love my mom or dad so much, but I'm so angry for what I experienced. And just here to say, like, you can hold both streams of thought in your body at the same time. Of course. Um, So, so that being said, my dad's gone. He's an alcoholic. There's abandonment. My mom, like there's physical, uh, emotional abuse happening in the house. And then as well, I was being abused by my uncle who was a police officer. He's in law enforcement and then also very heavily involved in the church. Um, And that was from six. So basically I was born into this environment with like two parents that were dealing with their own trauma and then the sexual abuse started happening at six and then that continued until I was 20. Also a different layer, because this is important too in regards to sexuality. So I was raised in the evangelical church Um, and then I went to a Mennonite Christian, Christian Mennonite high school and also attended an evangelical Bible camp.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Yes. So there was like trauma, 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 and then religious trauma on top of the trauma. So really there was just no, absolutely no safe space at all anywhere in my life. Uh, when I was sixteen, my brother became an alcoholic, and then he remained an alcoholic until we were thirty five so it was like my one lifeline was then not gone because he was still very much around, but like watching him deal outward outwardly with what I was dealing with inwardly was like mm. a pain that I don't think I can ever describe so that's kind of the scene or situation that I was dealing with until I reported my uncle to the police when I was 24.
0: Wow. And that must've taken like a lot of courage to do that. Right. Just the bravery to go and do that. Proud of you.
2: Seriously. Thank you.
0: And after like 20
1: years,
2: it's really tricky, which could be another podcast in and of itself, but just with navigating through childhood sexual abuse yeah, within the police system like there's not a lot that they could offer me but it did feel relieving to say it out loud somewhere yeah um and like to tell someone quote-unquote like in authority even though I do I do have mixed feelings about the popo but because uh-huh. my uncle because my uncle was involved with law enforcement right. so uh, naturally there, there's going to be fragmentation cool. um mm, right yeah so that that's that's kind of the full picture of what was what my childhood and and into like early adulthood was like.
0: Was that the first yeah. time you had spoken out about the abuse? Was it to the police or did you ever express anything to your mom?
2: So, with the sexual abuse, I told my mom. I told my mom we were in a fight actually. I was like, "Well, this is what happened." And then my mom was like, "What?" She but, had no
1: idea, eh?
2: know what, she did not, okay, here's the thing, which I had to work through this in therapy later, this like deep feeling of betrayal, because everyone in my family knew that my uncle was, there was something like off about him, and I think everyone had inklings that there might have been something happening, and yet no one investigated it, and I've had, I've had, I've had conversations now, now with like certain members of my family, but it's heartbreaking, right, because as an adult, when you're like, why, why didn't you just do something or like, inquire? So I I do think that people had inklings, but they were likely giving him the benefit of the doubt. And they were like, hopefully not. I don't know. Just kind of like assume, trying to
0: assume it's not happening or something.
2: Yeah. And I, I think too, it's like growing up in the 80s and 90s, like people didn't talk about mental health stuff. No one talked about trauma. There's no social media. There was, it was very taboo. Like if you talk about it, like, oh my gosh, they're in therapy. You're like, oh my gosh, they're, yeah. they're like son or daughter is having, their child is having trouble. So also understanding on that notion, like that that could have been how I responded as well. But definitely an element that was, tricky to navigate. That is still tricky to navigate, you know, just being like, uh, feeling let down. Of um, course. In that sense.
1: So you told your mom during the fight, was there anyone else who you kind of like confided in who helped maybe empower you to go to the police or at least to kind of lean into healing?
2: Uh, Jess from The Craft
0: oh what really
2: yeah so I don't even think Jess knows this but um so in and around that time when I went to the police I was I was coming off a okay I just need to get my timeline straight but I was again maybe story for a different podcast but like I was very very ill for several years I experienced a ton of medical trauma because I basically had this thing that no one could diagnose and I almost died, I, I was like 78 pounds at my lowest.
0: Oh, I remember oh you telling God. me about this, Kayla.
2: And the doctors were like, we don't know, like tested me for AIDS, like cancer, like everything was coming back fine and they were like, it's psychosomatic. And I found out it was actually at that time, undiagnosed celiac, which is so normal now, but at the time, no one knew what it was. Mm. It was like very mysterious, anyways. That happened and I had just begun healing physically from that, like regaining weight. I got hired as a server. It was my very first serving job and I met Jess. So this must've been back in like 2006. Jess was one of, one of my first friends at, at this restaurant and Jess is just like the best, like such a yeah, safe, awesome. kind, compassionate person. And I think in and around that time, I was like, I told my mom and I was like, I think I'm, I I might tell the police. And I remember calling Jess and she was like, I'm here for you. Like I support you um, if you want to talk about it. So I would say it, it was initially Jess that encouraged me to, to, to tell them, like tell, go to the police and talk about it. Yeah. Um, and I think after that time, like experimenting with talking to Jess about it, I, I only had positive support moving forward when I chose to share, which was surprising because I had read up a lot on people that had come out about sexual abuse, their own story of sexual abuse, and they were discredited or, like, not believed by their family, which is so painful, Mm -hmm. and I thankfully did not. That was not my experience. I was very, like, people, like, really rallied behind me, Mm -hmm. um, including members of my own family, uh, like, extended family. Good. Good. I should probably tell Jess Tell that. Like, Jess, like, Jess. Tell her. Like, I think she would love to hear that. Be like, thanks babe. Love you. <laughs> Jess.
1: Uh, like sometimes we don't know the impact we have on people's lives and without like, she, she was the first person that came to your mind just then, like immediately you were like, it was Jess.
2: Honestly, like one of my longest friends and she's just like so safe and like so kind and super consistent and Shout out to Jess. Shout, Shout out, out Jess,
0: Jess you <laughs> lovely angel human.
1: The thing that we thought would be really interesting to talk to you about, which is something you actually brought up to us, was this idea that like trauma can potentially impact your sexuality, how you identify, your orientation in your adult life. So I guess like first off, do you think that the sexual trauma you faced as a child affected or impacted your sexuality as an adult.
2: Base level, a hundred percent. And if, if I were to summarize this before we dive deeper, it would be by saying, like, here's this man in a position of power that I am blood related to, that is presenting as like this faithful deacon in the church and a a volunteer cop and then is molesting children so the way that like just in a sentence or two I would say that that impacted me it's like when he touched me it felt evil like I was disgusted it's disgusting so like when I say that like the classical conditioning of like being touched by an evil man I'm like holding that disgust in my body for anything sexual and then it's being primed by the Pentecostal church right as like Mm. sex is bad you're bad if you engage in sex right you're bad if you like like I don't even know how they would view a sexual um assault or abuse survivor but that would be how I would like I would say absolutely it affected it like I just that would be how I would summarize it yeah
1: yeah when you first brought this up my thought, I didn't go straight to queerness. I just went to the the idea of like your your entire sexuality, your understanding of your sexuality, whatever that means to you, is absolutely impacted by sexual trauma as a child. Like I went there right away. And then person and I were talking a bit more about like, well, what kind of impact might it have on who you love? what gender gender you love, what gender you're more drawn to, or whether you're drawn to a gender or not. And do you feel like
2: that was also kind of impacted as well? Yes. Can I expand on this? Or should I answer this in short form?
0: No, expand.
2: And I was thinking about this a lot today because I knew that we were going to be chatting, just really taking the time to think back. And it's so interesting because in talking with a lot of my queer friends, they're like, I knew I was queer when I was six or eight and I like felt this way about it or like this is when I finally like had the courage to share with my family or to share it with a friend and like I was just numb for as I mentioned before like literally until I was 29 like I was not if you talk to anyone I went to high school with they were like they would be like Kayla didn't date she never had a partner Mm -hmm. I never had felt anything for anyone like yeah, that earliest feeling that I can pinpoint, and I just recently remembered this. But when I was like, three, this is like the one of the only glimpses of a memory I have. I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. There is this family that we were friends with. And they had a daughter named Karen. I think her name was Karen. And when I say she was like, a beautiful angel. And I just remember in every single photo I have with Karen, she was probably like 25 and I was like three. Every photo I have with Karen, I'm like, <gasps> I'm like, I'm like, got so shy, all red, couldn't talk. Like my mom would be wow. like, Karen, Karen's here. And I'd be like. Oh, and you're having like out. panic. And I had this like glimpse of a feeling for Karen when I was like three. Again, reinforced by every single photo I have with her. Where I'm like, what's wrong with me? And then I had a glimpse of the feeling for my best friend next door, Jimmy, where I was like, oh, I, I love Jimmy. He's so cute. Yeah. And then nothing, when I, literally nothing at all. Like people always ask me out in high school. I always declined. Nothing at all until, now I'm like taking you on like a journey, but nothing until Fun. I was 20 and that, who will refer to as George. George.
1: George. And George
2: was the first person. It's not like I felt something for him. I just felt intrigued by him. And I wanted to be with him. But outside of that, it's not like I was existing in the world being like, I have feelings. I wasn't even aware. I couldn't even name a feeling because I was mm-hmm. in survival mode. So mm-hmm. in looking at like, was there a moment for me? I think in the question that you wrote, it's like, what about like coming out? It's like, it was never a coming out for me. It was a coming into who I am. I think is maybe a a way of putting it where, I I, I don't know, like now I'm just thinking, but now I can't remember the original question.
1: (laughs) No, but you're, but you are answering the original question. It's kind of like a two-part question here because maybe we should just circle back and, Talk about you and your sexuality, if you're comfortable talking about it, how you identify. And then you said you didn't have a coming out story, but you clearly had a moment where you were like, oh, I loved Karen and I loved Jimmy, and maybe what that moment was like. And then we can talk about trauma and maybe how those two things might be connected.
2: I mean, I identify now as pansexual. Like, I really feel like the essence of who I am is like, I love people's spirits and any form that their spirit takes like yeah i get so excited talking about it because i just like feel like this is how i've always been um <laughs> and
1: this and so sorry to interrupt but we've done um episodes before about labels and how sometimes labels are great and sometimes they're not but this is such a good example of when a label is great when you can hear a definition and totally identify with it and you feel it like in your body like that's a beautiful experience that's when like a label can be so helpful
2: yeah i would echo you in that sentiment of like labeling i i i agree i i think that there's like maybe a time and space for labels for sure if if a label resonates with you great i just label myself as like, I'm Kayla, you know, and like, yeah. I like, I would say, like, I like who I like. And like, I feel really good about that. Yes. <laughs> but I think like, this is relatively new for me or noticing this is new for me, I guess is a better way of putting that. Because as I said, you know, I was like numb for so long. And in growing up with a church, it's very much like Sex is bad. Having a lustful thought is bad. It's very purity culture. It's like no sex till marriage. If you have sex before marriage, you're going to hell. I never viewed myself as a sexual person. And I think growing up in a small town, I was just like, oh, I'm supposed to make out with guys. That's what I did. And then I liked the adrenaline of it, but I was either wasted in every sexual interaction or completely dissociated or both. Mm -hmm. for like, even when I was with my ex, like not so much wasted, but like the dissociation, even like within a relationship happening all the time. Right. Now I'm like getting away from myself, getting farther away from the point, but that's a little (laughs) backstory.
0: What I found was really interesting when you had voice noted us earlier was that bringing it back to like your trauma and sexuality, you do love humans you identify with like their spirit and that excites you with the sexual trauma you faced and you identifying as pansexual you were saying you still have a bit of a visceral reaction when it comes to possibly being with a cis man and we really wanted to dive into that a little bit more
2: yes and i think it's important to answer this question with a short story about my therapist please do I freaking love my therapist. I hope she's listening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll send her the link.
2: Yeah. (laughs) She's probably not. We don't follow each other on socials, but, um, yeah. So answering this question with a story about my therapist. So I guess I was just numb until I was, it's not, I guess I was numb for a very long time. And in 2017 i started working at soul cycle which really was the first place that was completely that felt completely safe for me and again this is speaking to soul cycle toronto and the community we created here not speaking to the integrity of the company as a whole (laughs) like just want to make that differentiation between like what we created here in toronto um for anyone that's familiar with soul cycle um but it wasn't until soul cycle where I think because I was surrounded by my people and I felt so supported, I really did, for the first time in my life, start to question, like, well, who, who am I really? And, like, what am I really attracted to? And I was also finding my dissociation was lifting a little bit in the presence of the safe community. And I met someone during this time who we'll call Paris. Mm-hmm. That literally, like, Perry. That (laughs) I don't know. It was just, I had like a visceral reaction to her. And I never, like, in my small town at this Christian Mennonite high school and like growing up in this type of way, like, everyone knows everyone else's business, everyone's pretty much straight. So I'd never really been exposed to this type of community that was like so queer focused and so open. And I met Paris and I was like, oh my God, like, what is happening? (laughs) I made an emergency appointment with my therapist. I was like, I need to talk to you you right now. And I, she was like, okay, come in tomorrow. I haven't seen her in like a year. And I burst into her office and I was like, bawling. And she was just standing there. And I I was like, I'm in love with a woman. <laughs>
0: I do love <them> woman. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow from the rooftop.
2: Yes, girl. And she was like, Do you want to sit down? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And I sat down and I was literally weeping. And she started laughing. And I was like, Why are you laughing? <laughs> <laughs> and and this is to say, like, my therapist and I have like a had like a solid foundation at this point. Like we're like this is not like she didn't know me and I didn't know her. Like we're like we have a rapport. So when I say that she was laughing, it was kindly. And she was like, I'm laughing because do you remember when you first came in here and you said you didn't feel anything? Mm, and she's right. like, Now look, now look in your feeling, you're doing your feeling. Like, how does that that like just think about that for a second? Because all I used to talk about was like, I just feel dead inside, you know, like uh-huh. I don't I'm dexter, yeah. like So she was like, look at you, you're feeling, and I was like, I hate it. And I was like, "Ah." So I I asked her, like, I was like, what is happening? What the fuck? Like, because the notion was, I went through this very painful breakup. Like, I loved my ex. He was an amazing person. I was in love with him. It broke my heart when we we separated. I thought I would never be the same again. And now I'm sitting here in therapy being like, oh my gosh, was that not real? Or like, what's happening now? Because I'm having these visceral feelings for, uh, for this woman. So I said to her, what's happening? Like, do you have patients that have been abused by men and they only date men? Or do you have patients that have been abused by men? They only like date women. Like, how does that work? And I, I think I just wanted some sort of concrete answer that makes sense of what I was feeling. Right.
0: Yeah. And she of was like,
2: she was like, honestly, Kayla, I've had patients where both has happened. And she said, Does it does it really like, do you really have to trace it back to a source or can you just maybe explore like letting it be? Mm. And I was like, no, I cannot. I need. <laughs> Answers
1: that's your Virgo moon right there. That's your Virgo moon talking.
2: I was like, no, this needs a box, this needs a little drawer that I could put it into and close it. Like exactly. I just need an answer. Yeah. You know, but I think me dialoguing with her and continuing to dialogue with myself on this for several years until I just brought it up to you. Was this whole notion of okay, I think what's happening is. Possibly, you know, I'm, you know, I'm born with this love for all humans. This is like mm-hmm. the essence of um, trauma happens. And a lot of that trauma, that sexual trauma was happening before I could form words. There's, there's the pre-verbal component. Maybe I say I was six years old. I could have been five or four. I'm not sure. Right. There's no one to confirm. For sure. So now it's getting tricky because there's this pre-verbal component of of like this sexual trauma happening that now in adulthood I'm having to unravel. So with this knowledge in mind, after meeting Paris began my experimentation journey of like, what's happening basically. Mm -hmm. And so to in a roundabout way of like answering your question now, I think the trauma has influenced Decisions I've made in regards to my own sexuality, and I mean that by saying, in sexual encounters with men, I am immediately afraid. And Mm -hmm. like, this is like a trained response from my nervous system. My nervous system, it's like cognizantly, I'm like, I know it's fine. Yeah. But my entire body, because it's been classically conditioned for so long, specifically with men and sex, my body is like, nope. And we're so not in down. charge of, we're not in charge of the, how we choose to survive. You know, we, we each have our own response to, to trauma. And I notice this frequently, any sexual interaction, I'm just flat, full on dissociating. Now with, right. um, and this is with like cis men, cis, like biological is cis or biological or like biological men.
1: Yeah. Like cis, cis men who identify with, with being male and they were assigned male at birth. Like, yeah, yeah. They identify with the gender that they were assigned at birth and, you know, maybe more masculine too, maybe like the typical tropes or stereotypes of a, of a man.
2: Yes. And so that's what I've noticed Um, because I cannot be present as much healing work as I've done. And also noting here, this is my experience. I'm not saying it's everyone's experience. And I'm also saying this could possibly change as I continue to heal. I don't know, but this is, I'm just mm-hmm. speaking to this present moment right now where like my body cannot be, I can't be present in any sexu- sexual interaction with a man because my body is so afraid. I'm dissociated. I'm hypervigilant. Mm-hmm. My mind is always like, he could turn on me. He could Yeah. like, how can I run? but he's so strong. Like he's so, he's more muscular than me. I can't get away. I'm not going to be able to get away. Like I just, it's so incredibly challenging. And I have found with my experiences with um, AFAB, like assigned female at birth, I don't, I'm not having that visceral reaction. It is more like, it feels more physiologically safe, I guess, which is, which is interesting because in finishing, it's quite complex because I was emotionally abused by a woman and sexually abused by a man. So I find it easier to open up emotionally to men, but then mm. easier to engage in sexual wow. interactions with, with AFAB.
1: Interesting. Wow.
2: So it's like a crisscross. I mean, it's so hard to know how to form words and thoughts about this like I just want to be really careful with how I'm wording this um careful with how I'm framing this as like my experience with how I've pieced it together but again reiterating like I don't want to speak for everyone or like for all survivors
1: no of course and I think I think it's really beautiful how you phrased it as you were telling that story of like you're like I think I was born loving all humans and a lot of shit happened to me And that kind of changed the trajectory of what might have happened if those things didn't happen to me. And like Persis, you can speak to this. When we were talking about doing this topic before this recording, Persis was talking about how like your sexuality is with you from the time you're born. You don't like choose your sexuality. It's not just like a decision you make. And so it's kind of interesting to like reconcile that knowledge with the knowledge that things that happen to you in your life could maybe impact how you, your sexuality in the future. And first, you can probably speak to it better because I know you were bringing this up to me, but I think that's interesting and it is complex. But I think, Kayla, you you worded it in the perfect way of like, It all exists. (laughs) It can all, all these things we're saying can exist at the same time. And I also think I was born just loving all humans.
0: I know. I think there's like there's no better way to say that. I, it was something I never really thought about at all, but I do think things that happen to us are just going to affect us in adulthood and it impacts us. I think that's the only way we can really say it. And we are who we are, like definitely want to make that very clear you were born loving all humans. We knew that right when you said you uh, had a little crush on Karen. Karen, <laughs> your first love.
2: I'm gonna try and find a photo. Like when I say that she was like, like Princess Diana, just like, Ooh. like very like, for like yes. that during that glam. time frame, just glam, like an a walking angel. <laughs>
1: I hope we can find Karen and send her a link to this podcast. So many people need to listen into this podcast. Jess needs to listen. Karen needs
2: to listen.
0: Kayla's therapist.
2: (laughs) I did not mean to interrupt you first. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say like you knew who you were as like as a child. But yeah, like the things you go through are going to affect you over time. And I definitely think sexuality is a part of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a, com- it's a complex topic though, for sure.
2: It, it is complex. And I think too, in regard, like I always tell humans that I work with, you know, I think trauma work is an uncovering. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're just clearing away, like what was our, what's always been there. Yeah. Uh, like clearing away, like traumas, like debris or like, you're just like, Not completely clearing it but just like there's a flower and like it's always been a flower but there's like all this stuff on top of it so like healing is just like let's get back to the flower again and maybe in a strange kind of way i would draw a parallel to like that's how i viewed navigating my own sexuality because there's just it's buried Mm -hmm. under layers of like repression from the like church and and like my experiences and it's like let's get back to that pureness of what it's always been or like how can we come back to that right I wrote a poem once on that said something along the lines of like I am not okay but I am trying like a flower blooming through ice I am trying
0: Kayla girl you
1: are Rupi Kaur and I know you take that as the biggest compliment I could
2: possibly give you Rupi
0: if you're listening we have if your absolute number one fan.
2: I think it's important to share that because I didn't know really know how to answer, like to loop all the way back to the coming out question. I don't even have an answer for that because there was no one that I came out to. It's yeah, like right? I never talked. I had like my dad's past. I don't have I don't know that comfortable navigating that conversation with my mom due to the trauma. Mm-hmm. um it was more so like I just uncovered this these thoughts and ideas around my sexuality within the presence of very safe humans and like that's where I had those conversations like I I was seeking out the safety first and then when I did chat about it I was already met people that were like oh that's so we love that like same for like me too so it was it wasn't necessarily, like, I, I came out, like, with anything. It was more so I was just creating safety to be more of myself. Yes, and then yes, have conversations about that.
0: That makes so much sense. I, get,
2: I guess, or I did, I did have, I have since then had lots of conversations with my brother and his partner who have, who are, like, the loveliest. Right. But, um, yeah, just wanted to make sure we loop back to that because I don't know, If I even really have an answer for.
1: But that's normal. We talk about this all the time on the podcast. There are, you don't have to have a coming out story. And so many people don't. It's not about like, oh, did I come out to someone? That's almost like an added layer of pressure that doesn't need to happen. Like, it's just, you're just experiencing life and you're experiencing your own sexuality. Some people come out, some people don't. It's like absolutely normal and it's just so common. It, I feel like especially now as people maybe feel a little bit more liberated to explore their sexuality. I would say there's probably like less coming out happening now because people are just fluid. I think so too. Oh,
2: totally. I mean, obviously, like the Gen Zs are stirring the pot, but I'm like obsessed with the. I'm obsessed with Gen Zs. Like they are just like they like come out of the womb fluid. They're like, let's go straight up. Yeah, so refreshing. Like growing up in the '80s, like people were so stiff, you know. Like. And also they're
1: just like so much more politically aligned. Like they're, they're, they care about the environment, maybe because they're all terrified that they're not going to have like a future on this earth. They're like, like not to get even too have morbid. Kids? Probably but, not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they're feared for their life. But, you know, I appreciate Gen Z. I think they're teaching us more than we're teaching them.
0: It's true. There's less coming out stories. It's more common for someone to just already assume you're fluid. Actually, I saw this funny YouTube video where they were saying in LA, they almost like just assume everyone's gay and it's like weird if you're yep. straight. It's like I just assume <laughs> yeah. you're gay or not.
1: Isn't that amazing? I feel like that's that's like a lot of big cities.
2: <laughs> I was just talking to my one of my best friends on the phone, uh Chris is his name and he was like, "Honestly, Kayla, I forget that there's still there's still people who are straight." Hi
0: me <laughs> welcome to girl on girl where one of us is straight
2: that's
1: right one of us is straight i know i feel like we've done the tagline so much that i'm like am i straight anymore like who even knows yes, girl. <laughs> i talk about queerness every week for a year like at this point i definitely like <laughs> like i've got to question something like and also just talking about how much everything is on a spectrum like i've, t- I've said this before in a past episode like i refuse i can't believe that like I just think like everyone's on a spectrum of some sort. Whether and maybe I'm way, way, way over here, but I'm still on the spectrum. Like, there's no such thing as like, sorry, I exist off of this spectrum of sexuality over here. Like, there's, you know what I'm saying?
2: BuzzFeed has a quiz that you can take.
1: <laughs> you should take the MI Gay quiz. What is it? Is it, it MI Gay? Is that what the quiz is?
2: Oh my god, the BuzzFeed quiz is so good. Let's send it. Let's send it. First of all, I just want to say, truly,
1: from like the bottom of our hearts, thank you for for sharing everything you just shared. I know that this is what you do and what you're passionate about, but I still really can't imagine, really I can't imagine what it's like to talk about it, to have to even relive it in little bits like this. So I just think that this episode is really going to be, helpful is
0: such a silly word here, but- it's an understatement.
1: Right, like it's just, this is the kind of episode that people feel seen when they listen to. And I just wanted to say like, truly thank you and the work you do is so important. And if anyone listening is either struggling with trauma or maybe even more interested in learning about it, kind of like I am, like what that process might be like of uncovering, what are some small ways that maybe they can start learning about trauma or working through their own trauma?
2: If someone is wanting to learn more, I highly recommend anything by Gabrielle Amate. Um, who I've been referencing throughout the podcast, he currently has a documentary out called The Wisdom of Trauma right now. Okay. I think it's I think it's like literally www.thewisdomoftrauma.com. But if you Google it, it should pop up. But um, he's written several books. Like When the Body Says No is one of them. The Wisdom of Trauma is another. In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, more so looks at addiction. But his work is fascinating. I just feel like he's creating so much space to have, he's continuing to create space for people to have these conversations because the work he's done is so insightful and thought-provoking. So mm-hmm. I would say anything by Gabor Maté. I also highly recommend the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It reads more like a, it's like a lot of information, And can be a little bit triggering if you do have a trauma history, but it's super informative. And I I recommend reading it in small doses because like anyone that has trauma is going to feel seen by that book because it has super in-depth like scientific explanations as to what's happening in the body as a result and like how to address it. Like I had so many moments where I was like, oh my gosh. Last book recommendation is by David Emerson, Overcoming Trauma Through Yoga. This was, this book literally changed my life, truly. And David Emerson is who I did my training with and he's absolutely amazing, one of my trainings with. And I would say from a personal standpoint, I, I personally believe that like we can't heal trauma without the establishing of safety, period. There needs to be safety somewhere in, in your life, I think, in order to begin that healing journey. And this is where therapy was very beneficial for me. Like my therapist was the first person in my life that held compassionate space for me, that modeled what kindness was, consistency. So for anyone that's kind of figuring out like first steps, I would say, is there a safe person or professional that you can connect with? Is there a safe group online even um, or in person that you can seek out? like a a trauma support group. It doesn't even have to be trauma-focused. Like, is there a safe community of humans that you can access consistently would be like a very beginning uh, step, I would say.
1: Right. And then if anyone listening wants to work with you or learn from you or just keep up with what you're putting out there into the world, how can they do that?
2: So they can follow me on all social platforms if they want to. I'm Kayla Meredith or Move to Heal Project, depending on where. So on Instagram, I'm Kayla Meredith. On TikTok, I don't know what my username is. It's either Kayla Meredith, Kayla with a C, or the Move to Heal Project. But I will have, I work one-on-one very minimally with trauma survivors right now, but um, come March, I'll have an entire platform a group program, still the one-on-one, and then, like, I'm trying to create accessible tiers um, for a different, like, just I'm trying to create accessibility in what I'm offering. So hopefully I'll have all of those offerings available in March. So I would say send me a message on Instagram, come hang out on TikTok uh, with me as an elder millennial.
0: <laughs> yeah, but very knowledgeable. <laughs>
2: And, uh, move to heal project.com is my site will be up and functioning in March. So I'm heading over there as well, where you can join the newsletter. Wicked. We'll
1: link all of that, obviously. So you guys can check Kayla out, but Kayla, we love you so much.
0: Kayla, thank you, you times a million, seriously, for being on this episode. This was incredible, this conversation. And you were so open and invulnerable and you're so strong
2: you're so strong your words mean so much to me and as i mentioned i've mentioned many times previously being here is like like a warm hug truly mm-hmm. <laughs> and Love i that. i i i think thank you for your kind words and i really do think you know like i am where i am because of the the beautiful like wonderful people in my life you know like we, we never heal alone i could not do this by myself, and like that's another thing. If anyone's listening, it's like I know how excruciatingly scary it can be to open up and ask for help, but like support is available, and like you, you are held and supported. And sometimes we just have to find it or find find our people. And yeah. like I, I a hundred percent would not be the person I am without the people that are in my life. So just yeah. like really want to give that credit where it's due as well
0: <laughs> of course and we love you we love you so love much
2: you. Love my you. heart is like bursting I know.
1: <laughs> persis we have an in case you missed it today that makes me feel a little bit of anger in my body
0: I was about to sing our theme song, but I'm so angry that I'm not gonna do it anymore.
1: Oh, you were gonna sing it,
0: huh? I was gonna sing, but now I'm not going to.
1: Okay. Well, I hate that you're depriving the listeners of your beautiful voice. It's <laughs> that's, that's a bummer. Yeah, but honestly, this in case you missed it, like it makes sense that you wouldn't want to sing because it's confusing and very concerning. in my IMO, I'm confused.
0: What are we talking about today for this in case you missed it?
1: So what we're talking about is if you guys haven't seen this already, the New York Post, which is a digital magazine, posted a story on March 15th of this year. And the uh, headline for the story, it's in the fashion section of the magazine. The headline says, dressing like a lesbian is sexy, powerful, new trend, fashion expert says.
0: New trend? (laughs) I can't even like read it seriously. Can I read the first line of the article? Please do, please. Lesbianist, queer fashion is totally in.
1: (laughs) Guys, guys, in case you didn't get that, it's lesbianist, not let's be honest.
0: Fucking New York Um, Post.
1: This article describes lesbian
0: fashion i'm using air quotes as knitted sweater vests (laughs) is is, is that what it says and okay i'm sorry it says dr martin's boots but do they mean doc martin
1: boots i think they mean Doc.
0: (laughs) yeah whoops they definitely mean doc martin boots and knitted sweater vests is what they consider lesbian fashion
1: yeah. And like they're showing a bunch of pictures of famous actresses in like pantsuits, matching pantsuits, really baggy clothes, tweed jackets, essentially like androgynous style fashion and or more masculine skewed fashion, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and according to the article, it's
0: sexy and it's a new powerful trend.
1: So this is what the article says. This is very problematic in a lot of ways. But one thing that we just want to touch on first before we discuss is who this fashion expert is that gave all these quotes for the article. And this makes it even worse, guys. The fashion expert that NY Post is speaking about is an author named Jill Gutowitz, a well-known queer author. And what happened was Jill wrote an essay for Harper's Bazaar, I believe, and the New York Post took that essay that she wrote and completely twisted it and somehow mishmashed it into this headline that we just read you, dressing like a lesbian is sexy, powerful, new trend and named Jill as like the fashion expert who decided this. And Jill had some things to say. She posted a Twitter thread. I'm just going to read it for you guys. She said, the New-, the New York Post took an essay I wrote about finally feeling secure enough with my sexuality to dress as gay as I've always wanted. That's what the essay was about. And co-opted it, bastardized it, turned it into the outrage headline of the week. They shifted the tone of my tongue-in-cheek article about gay fashion into something offensive and one-dimensional that I wholeheartedly disagree with. Please don't quote me as the author of that smooth brain article, or call me a self-proclaimed fashion expert. That's also that's also hilarious. They call her a fashion expert. She's a writer. She's an author.
0: I'm sorry. Oh my Jill god. Jill says.
1: Jill continues and says, I am not that and I don't know fashion. In fact, in my essay, a piece in which I dub croakies as fashion, I make that clear. Writing about me as being anything other than a queer essayist who was unknowingly dragged into the pits of the culture wars without any consent is just bad faith. And to those who have gone so far as to send me angry DMs or tweets calling me a heterosexual who's culturally appropriating lesbianism, oh my god. Simply gestures and then inlet like with the stars and the little like star symbol it says simply gestures at my entire career so she's saying like for anyone calling me a heterosexual appropriating lesbianism hi just look at her huge collection of queer lit that she's written lots of books and essays that are all about um, the queer experience
0: their fellow it girls bella hadid and kendall jenner have also stunned in sapphic swag
1: no no let's talk about the headline itself what is so problematic about this headline dressing like a lesbian is sexy powerful new trend or the concept of dressing like a lesbian
0: i mean i think the fact that it's calling like being a lesbian essentially like a trend like you're associating the word lesbian with trend which is really problematic and also i i get really annoyed when people say like it's cool to be a lesbian now like Do you know what I mean? Where it almost feels like trendy, or people get accused if they're fluid. It's like, oh, because like that's like the hip thing to do now is to be fluid and non-monogamous, or whatever the case is. But it's like these are people's lives and their identities that we're talking about. It's not just me jumping on a trend, which is not even a trend. (laughs) Like, no, right?
1: It completely invalidates your entire experience and the experience of a million other people out there who aren't jumping on a trend they are they do identify as a lesbian and they have like that's who they are and that's how they were born and then on top of that it's just problematic to suggest that all lesbians dress a certain way and it's especially problematic to suggest that all lesbians dress either androgynous or more masculine because I mean, you are the perfect, you're like the poster child for how bad this is because we talk about this all the time on the pod. You're femme presenting yet. Like you, you dress in different ways depending on your, on your mood and you love like androgynous style, but you also love makeup and you love, and you love to like dress pretty every now and then. And the fact that this article is saying that a lesbian only dresses in like matching pantsuits and like dr martin's (laughs) baggy baggy short whatever like it's also invalidating your experience as a femme presenting lesbian
0: yes and any other lesbian who doesn't dress that way (laughs) it's absolutely ridiculous like and honestly i can't i can't find a byline anywhere about who would have written this it just says ny post
1: yeah. I bet you if they did have a byline, they they might have like taken it down because of all the hate and the heat. We've been seeing a lot of lesbian content creators posting about, about this and how upsetting it is. It's just another reminder of how much women are subject to aesthetics. Like women, whether straight or queer, o- always seem to have to fit into this like mold of aesthetics, what they wear, what their hair is like, what their makeup is like, how they look. And I can't believe that the stereotype still exists in 2020. It's shocking.
0: I know. I know. It just goes to show that that hasn't gone away and people still have all these like judgments or boxes <laughs> we're just putting putting people into. It's It's weird. Guys, let us know what you think about this article. Let us know what you think about
1: the conversation we just had because I would be really interested to hear all of y'all's thoughts.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm still shocked about this article. It's kind of funny. But then again, it's the New York Post. And like we said before, they're not really like a really uh, professional website in terms of journalism and
2: proper Uh, news. No,
0: No, they're
1: eye-roll worthy. And also Jill Gutowitz, if you're listening, come on the pod. We'd love to talk to you about this whole thing and about your work.
0: Yeah, please do. Okay, well, Purse,
1: I am so happy that you dress however you want to dress as a lesbian and that you own that shit.
0: Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And I'm glad you dress exactly how I tell you to as my girlfriend. Oh, baby, baby. Mm -hmm. Do you like the um, little beanie I'm wearing today? Did you know I was wearing a beanie before I chucked it off my head because it felt weird with the headphones on? No way. You chucked it?
1: Was it your yellow beanie? Yeah. (laughs) I'll point out that Princess has a yellow beanie that she loves, and it's not the girl-on-girl yellow beanie. It's a different yellow beanie. Yeah. Whoops. How rude. How rude. Um, Okay. I love you. I love you too. And we love love you, you Kayla, Meredith. Thank you for chatting with us today. And yes, we love you guys so much.